Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In 2019, Joy Harjo was named the 23rd United States Poet Laureate, becoming the first Indigenous American to receive the honor, which she held for three terms. Born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, she is a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation. And in an unusually varied career, in addition to her poetry, she has pursued painting, screenwriting, and playing the alto saxophone, as well as teaching, editing, and writing children's books. Harjo is marking the occasion of her semi-centenary as a poet with two books, Weaving Sundown in a Scarlet Light, which collects 50 poems for 50 years, and Catching the Light, a meditation on, quote, the why of writing poetry. Her work stands at the crossroads, evoking both the deeply personal and the shared experience of generations, and in it we find Creek spirits and missing women, creation myths, and truck stops in equal measure. Through it all, her voice is unmistakable. Joy Harjo is the author of many books of poetry and two memoirs, and has produced seven award-winning music albums. She joins us from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thank you so much for taking the time, Joy. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. So the occasion for these two books and for our conversation is celebrating your 50 years since your first published poem in 1972. But I I often feel like when we get published or, you know, are recognized or called poet by someone else is not necessarily when we become that thing. So was there like a particular moment when you realized that poetry was for you and that you were a poet? Yes, and it wasn't. Most of the poets I know were writing when they came out of the womb and were, you know, all literary bent from day one. And for me, it it didn't come till much later, till I was an undergrad at the University of New Mexico. I loved, I, I always drew and painted and was very, that was my way of expression and investigation. <laughs> because I think of the creative arts as investigation and following roads and visions uh in, in ways and places that haven't been done before. And I was a student at the University of New Mexico, very involved in the Native Student Club, Kiva Club, and social Native rights movements, and, and so on. And I was still painting, but I'd started, I uh, met Simon Ortiz, the Acoma poet. He introduced me to Leslie Silco. I, and I came to know, you know, the poetry people, in Albuquerque, and Albuquerque was quite a crossroads. I know Judy Gron was through there, um, Robert Creeley, all kinds. Of, had, and UNM had quite the, uh, the the reading series. So I had started writing poetry because I saw it, I think, too, or as the way it started coming through as a tool to, to speak in behalf of what I saw going on in my own eyes because I was not a person who spoke out loud very much. I tended to be fairly quiet. That's why one reason I love doing art is I could go into that space, that into silence and find an immensity. I was never a person with words, you know, who could stand up and speak, although I often got chosen in drama to for different roles because, as the teachers would say, I had a voice that carried. Well, I guess my voice wanted to carry something, so... <laughs> I uh, started writing my own poetry. The first, you know, of course, with any young poet, the first poems were, you know, that's what they were. But I started writing, and it was 
I think it was the summer that my daughter was born. I was in, I was in summer school taking linguistics and a Native American literature class. There were no such things. It was American Indian literature, and it was taught by somebody who knew nothing about Native people and who had come out to teach a summer class. And so that was very entertaining. But it was around that time that the poetry started taking over. And before drawing was my way to to find go into those kinds of spaces and then poetry and language. I mean, I, I always loved poetry. I read poetry. I came to poetry through my mother. My mother memorized poems as a kid in school. They had to. And, so she she loved poetry and she wrote songs. She was a songwriter. So that was my entry. But being part of the Kiva Club and, and hearing these amazing poets I saw, I began to see how, you know, the voice it it just took over. I'm giving you a really long, windy answer, I know. <laughs> not, not a nice short, you know, radio answer, podcast answer. But all that to say is that poetry took over and it surprised me because, you know, who makes a living with poetry? I had two children. Yeah, it does seem like it was a difficult career choice, especially because you don't see it as a career, you see it as a calling. And I'm wondering how that calling, finding yourself awakened to that calling and saying yes to it changed you sort of in those initial moments. I mean, now you're, you know, a three-time U.S. Poet Laureate, so I think we know how it's changed your life, but how did it feel, you know, as a single mother of two kids? I guess I guess what it, it taught me was to trust, trust the place the poetry comes from, that the arts come from, and to know that the road, of course, is it, you, that my road, any of our roads, is a, it's singular. We're joined by many others, but everybody has their own path. And sometimes you take your path, whether it's in the way you write, your style, your manner, uh, your, uh, um, or even be, <laughs> even the path of saying, you know, saying and, and being a poet. It taught me to trust, to trust it even though it seemed like something outrageous for a young mother, you know, who's going to school full-time and, and working to say, well, I'm going to be a poet. And it's like, where in the, where does that even fit? You know, in American culture, I think, I think, at, you know, at this point in, in, in the history of the U.S., I think poetry has proven itself to be necessary especially the last two or three years. It's become much more um, obvious as a tool for knowing ourselves and for being able to move through, you know, the, the abyss of, of, how would I say that? That might, a collective challenging abyss. Can you talk more about the relationship between the collective and the individual in your poetry? Because it... It is at once really deeply personal, but at the same time, it seems to speak for for generations, you know, for entire groups of people and for everybody. Sometimes I feel like it speaks for me, too. It's the nature of this voice that I had to follow. I've had a lot of students in the past come up, you know, how do I find my voice when your voice is right there? 
You know, of course we get influenced by other, you know, wonderful poets, of course, and listening. Galway Canal really, I found something in his poetry uh, that sense that I guess a, probably a theme in my poetry is transformation. And he also, I think that was a major theme in his poetry too, the transformation of love or how how in our oldest mythical beings, being self, transformation is, is at the root of that. Um, I think my voice, what I came to realize, because, you know, like any of us going through different, you know, different decades and ages, certain styles, manners of poetry or the arts emerge, some, some die down right away, <laughs> disappear, others stay a little longer, they're attached to, to what's going on, fashion, etc., etc. And at times I've tried to follow it or tried to fit myself into fashion, you know, into literary fashion, and it doesn't work. I have a voice that it's like, nope, it's, there's something, it's something else. It's made of something else. And it being made of something else, I think, um, really probably impeded my so-called career progress or literary progress because I've gone my own way. And people didn't always understand it. And I know I've been discounted. I mean... <laughs> I remember at one point being turned down and by a, I t- turned in the poems, some of the best poems that were in She Had Some Horses were turned down by a couple of magazines I sent them to. Hmm. And I almost just put the poems in the fire. Wow. At a fireplace. And I thought, you know, and then I didn't. I thought, well, that would hurt my spirit, you know, to do that. And I have to, I don't understand this thing and why. I know, I understood why it's so compelling. You know, we who love literature, it's very compelling. And that you never lose that, just like music. We just have to do what we do. Can you talk more about um, what it was like being surrounded by so much Native art and so many Native students from all over, sort of making art and making activism at such a vibrant time? How the, I guess, the political and the personal and the group identity and individual identity collided for you at this like moment when you were becoming a poet it just seems like such a cauldron yes and I realized I didn't really answer your previous question about the (laughs) (laughs) the larger voice I guess what I was trying to say and and is that I've always been aware that my voice even I say my voice but it's something that I serve it's something that I'm taking care of Mm mm-hmm but yes, I started, um, I think really probably crucial element to, I wouldn't, I don't know that it's an element. It's really a, a crucial route to my becoming the, a poet and the kind of poet that I am was, you know, being a student at uh, the Institute of American Indian Arts in the late 60s when it was a Bureau of Indian Affairs school and kind of caught between the old uh, militaristic BIA system and at the same time, we were ahead of the curve with uh, an incredible slate of artists, teachers, who uh, were the best in the country. 
mostly native and some non-native. And so there we were in that militaristic system with this infusion of ideas. And it was the late 60s and it was Santa Fe and, you know, the hippies were all camped out up in Taos. Some of the students had run away and come back with all kinds of cool ideas and stuff, <laughs> you know, and and so on. So it was quite a ripe time, you know, of imagining and imagining together. Our class changed the face of Native art and contemporary art, even. And it was such, I think it was just a crossroads of culture. It was a cultural crossroads because we were many different nations and we're not all the same. So there was a lot of sharing or, you know, ideas and so on. And then there was two Native rights, you know, civil rights movement, Native rights movement, you know, Al Alcatraz takeover happening and thinking about well who are we where do our arts come from we used to have these conversations some of us were high school students most of us were and there were uh, a few postgraduate but we all had those kinds of questions you know one I think a lot of us were thrilled to be in a school that was all native and you know that's when I started talking in class and all native and all um, artists that's another, that adds another whole overlay to, to what it means to be a human and how you can move about and then have, be around people who inspire you and push you and also un understand, you know, what this all might be about or that path might be about when, you know, the family, people, people don't always get it. So the collective, yeah, very much. I mean, I think that um, I, I'm trying to figure out while I'm talking to you a good way to, to answer that question. I mean, I think that probably in everything, every everyone in a sense embodies the collective. But I know that my voice, I know when I see it. I mentored uh, a young um, poet. And I told him at one point, he got into, he was applying for graduate schools and almost everybody was offering him full ride in, you know, NYU, all these places. I said, Iowa will probably turn you down. And they did. I said, <laughs> but every place was saying, please come here, please, you know, we'll give you our everything. And, and I said, well, just keep in mind, you have one of those voices a voice that comes out every once in a while and it's a generational voice so it's carrying it's carrying a lot and it's going to want to speak a certain way and that doesn't always jive with the vernacular i wanted to ask about your time at iowa because it seems like such a change from your time in the southwest from you know this place that you say inspired you to look at light differently to look at poetry differently where you know there you say so many left prayers through eons of history and then you end up in iowa you know surrounded by artists but it wasn't quite the same experience no and uh it's not all the fault of iowa the writer's workshop it's <laughs> it's uh that I came, um, it was a totally different kind of world. I had come from places that were predominantly Native influence or presence. And Iowa, certainly, there I came to know the Meskwaki people and really, you know, respect 
very young bear and, and, and his poetry out of there. But I went into a school far away. I think I was probably one of the only students that didn't get any support hmm. for school from there. The, what is it, EOC, Equal Opportunity People, a guy there, Ray Leal, actually got me, dug around and got me a job teaching. But it was, it was so, there was, it was, it was a shock. I went from having a community to the community being poets and from very different cultures. I think I was probably one of the very few that did not have, you know, a lot of the students had PhDs in literature and, and most of my hours were in art history, <laughs> you know, because I was a, I was a BFA in studio art major until the very end. And, um, so there were there there was so much there was a lot of that and I just never felt like I fit in. But then I learned later that people who appeared to be fitting in, many of them felt like they didn't fit in either. You know, we were all we were all there going through our stuff. But I want to clarify something because there was a book that came out a couple of years ago on Iowa on the Writers Workshop and. I, I knew about it because I saw uh, a review in The Nation, and I was mis- horribly revised. Anything I'd said had been revised so much that I had talked about. I talked about a, a, a poet professor who um, I've, I've written about it, about how, you know, Sandra Cisneros and I were in that class, and we were excluded from the worksheets and and so on and um but in this book the apparently the writer said that i have never said who that person was so the writer took the liberty and said that donald justice was uh, you know had given me a hard time donald justice was my champion and that that really st- hurt. I didn't. I have not written that writer yet. But Donald Justice, um, he actually took time with me and wasn't trying to hit on me when he took time with me, you know, which happened to a lot of the female students. Mm-hmm. And um, he really listened and was helpful. And um, so, so there were there were those moments. But I felt I don't know. I felt like I was far, far away from even my sense of poetry and how, you know, a certain take on poetry, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I just I just felt like I, I don't know. I don't know why I worry about fitting. I don't worry about fitting in anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it's different when you're young and feel, I guess, uncertain of, mm-hmm. of who you are, only certain of who you are in a certain place. Right, but I decided to go there. I had offers from the every place else that I applied. I got into. They offered me teaching fellowships. You know, they they offered me, and I decided that was where I needed to be. Mm. It was a challenge, but you know, it was a useful challenge. And I I met Sandra there, my friend Sandra Cisneros, and uh, mm-hmm. I was also friends with Jane Ann Phillips, and made a few other friends there. It seems like all of your experiences, no matter how difficult, do get filtered into your work, of course, because it's an investigation. It's a way of figuring out 
what this means to you and how it means to you. But what was interesting to me about the move to Iowa, too, is that um, like sense of place seems to be so strong in your work. You know, this inspiration in the Southwest, this awakening. Um, sometimes the place seems really specific, you know, a kitchen table, a bar in midwinter, the 13th floor of a building in Chicago. But sometimes it's also prophetically large, like all of America. Can you talk more about place and your relationship with place? Yes. And that was a big one. You're right. It had to do with so much. When I started writing poetry, I was at the University of New Mexico. I was deeply centered in place and a community. When I went to Iowa, I was I felt misplaced. And in the Southwest, I feel there are, you know, but there are places I've been, you know, in the middle of Cairo and felt absolutely centered. I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand all of that, except that, you know, the kitchen table, that keeps coming up. In talking about a sense of place, I guess uh, my immediate tendency is to go to a sense of placelessness. Mm. I feel often that I'm in a liminal space, and I remember even being in diapers and being really young and feeling like in that space I could go anywhere or be anywhere, and then I would get pulled back to this story or to this place where mm. here I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, you know, in this set of characters, and and I had to... I had to kind of calm myself and make myself center into this place. New Mexico became a place of renewal. I mean, it has to do with light. That's why catching the light. It, there's a lot about how much light, what light has to do with it. And there's something. It's. I think it's. I think language. I believe that language and and soundscape and even how we find meaning is it's really bound up in the in in the biosphere of place mm -hmm. i mean i i've often you know you know i can tell when a poet often is from new york city or writes out of you know the urban scape it's there in the sounds and the rhythms and uh you know the uh, images and and the shape of the buildings and all of that. Somehow it all, the poetry fits itself around it. I always think of Frank O'Hara that way, and, mm -hmm. you know, on, on the street. And, and I can always smell New York City and, and, and so on. Um, others, you know, it's not so obvious, I don't think. But generally, I think there's a lot more there, and even ancestral, but I, you know, those what's in the DNA, the DNA stories, the poetry DNA. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, that's, oh, that's cool. I hadn't thought of it like that before. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, like your relationship with place is a complicated one as someone who's part of the Muscogee Creek Nation because Tulsa is your home now, but it only became home after the Muscogee were forced to march to Oklahoma in the Trail of Tears. Can you talk about that complexity of, of what home means in that context? Yeah. 
it's hard to do it in an interview sometimes or to, I wrote an American sunrise in a way, kind of looking, you know, investigating that kind of complexity. Mm-hmm. Because I came back, I returned after being, you know, I left, went to Indian school, came back, gave birth to my son in Tahlequah and left again and stayed out in the Southwest, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, even LA for a while. And then far, far to Hawaii for 11 years, so Oahu, but I came back, and I think that's, you know, there. there's a number of reasons, my tribal nation, the people, you know, we're working on arts, mentorships, etc. here, and I, I kind of want to turn in that direction with my community, but also there's, there is a complexity here, it's being fought out you know, it's one reason I left. It's it's like there's a uh, a religious. Oh, there are s- severe religious overtones hmm. that are very divisive. I know many of the people don't believe they're they're not into it in for that because they have a genuine love. But when you come in and make your way the only way, and draw a line, it's it does it makes I think it it can uh, impede the spirit of a community, of course. But Tulsa was always known as, uh, I know all the old dance places that my parents danced in, and one of them is just off the road, Kane's Ballroom, and I've gotten to play there, and the Cimarron Ballroom, and it's it's a place of music. We used to have all those famous country swing musicians at our house playing music, and really on the edge of, you know, making music on the edge, and the arts, native arts everywhere. So I come back to where you have these religious overtones, and then on the other hand, this incredible art that sometimes intersects. But um, I guess I always see, you know, artists and artistry having some kind of freedom that can't ultimately can't be bound. It can't be bound by. It can be bound. <laughs> I guess I say it can't be. Yes. Um, politics and dictators and and um, so on can but you can't the spirit you can't I mean this whole this whole world is a creative in a creative mess you know and there's a kind of forcefulness to it well um, I'm gonna end by asking you to read something from American Sunrise to answer my last question in poetry by reading one of my favorite poems, Washing My Mother's Body, uh, which made me cry the first time and will probably make me cry again, um, because I think in a lot of ways it encapsulates and says another way a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Okay, well, yeah, I was getting, I was thinking that that might. I hope it does, because I feel like I, I went all over the place. <laughs> so... Washing My Mother's Body I never got to wash my mother's body when she died. I returned to take care of her in memory. That's how I make peace when things are left undone. I go back and open the door. I step in to make my ritual. To do what should have been done, what needs to be fixed so that my spirit can move on. So that the children and grandchildren are not caught in a knot of regret they do not understand. I find the white enamel pan she used for bread and biscuits. 
I turn the faucet on and hold my hand under the water until it is warm, the temperature one uses to wash an infant. I find a clean washcloth in a stack of washcloths. She had nothing in her childhood. She made sure she had plenty of everything when she grew up and made her own life. Her closets were full of pretty dresses, so many she had not time to wear them all. They were bought by the young girl who wore the same flower sack dress to school every day, the one she had to wash out every night and hang up to dry near the wood stove. I pick up the bar of soap from her sink, the same soap she used yesterday morning to wash her face. When she looked in the mirror, did she know it would be her last sunrise? I move over pill bottles, a clock radio on the table by the bed, a pen, and set down the pan. I straighten the blankets over her to keep her warm for dignity. I start with her face. Her face is unlined even two months before her 80th birthday. She was known for her beauty. As I wash my mother's face, I tell her how beautiful she is, how brave, how her beauty and bravery live on in her grandchildren. Her face is relaxed and peaceful. Her earth body memory has not left yet. But when I see her the next day embalmed and in the casket in the funeral home, it will be gone. Where does it go? It is heavier than the spirit who lifted up and flew. I think of it making the rounds to every place it has loved to say goodbye. Goodbye to the house where I brought my babies home, she sings. Goodbye to June's bar where I was the shuffleboard queen. I cannot say goodbye yet. I will never say goodbye. I lift up each arm to wash. Her hands still wear her favorite rings. She loved her body and decorated it with shiny jewelry, with creams and makeup. I am tender over that burn scar on her arm from when she cooked at the place with the cruel boss who insisted she reach her hand into the fry later to clean it. She had protested. It was still hot and suffered a deep burn. That scar always reminded me of her coming in from working long hours in restaurants, her uniform drenched with sweat, determination, and exhaustion. Once she came home and I was burning up with a fever. She pulled out the same pan I am dipping the washcloth in now, only she's added rubbing alcohol to bring the fever down. She washes tenderly. Tells me how her friend Chunky left her husband again, how she knows her old boss, a Jewish woman who treated her kindly, has cancer. She doesn't know how she knows. She just knows. She doesn't tell me that. I find it in a journal she has left me, a day book in which she has written notes for me to find when she is gone. I wash her neck and lift the blankets to move down her heart. I thank her body for carrying us through the tough story, through the violence of my father and her second husband. The story is all there, in her body, as I wash her to prepare her to be let down into earth and return all stories to the earth. My body memories rise up as I wash. I recall carrying my two children, rocking them and feeding them from my body, how I knew myself as beloved earth in that body. I uncover my mother's legs. I remember the varicose veins that swelled like rivers when my mother would get off a long shift of standing and cooking. 
A woman should be honored like a queen. Traditionally, we treated our women with that kind of respect, my Creek husband tells me. Ha, I laugh and ask him, then why aren't you cooking my dinner? I wash her feet, caress them. You will have some rest now, I tell my mother. Even as I know, my mother was never one for resting. I cover her. I make the final ring of the washcloth and drape it over the pan. I brush my mother's hair and kiss her forehead. I ask the keepers of the story to make sure her travel is safe and sure. I ask the angels whom she loved and with whom she spoke frequently to take her home, but wait, not before I find her favorite perfume. Then I sing her favorite song softly. I don't know the name of the song, just a few phrases. One of those old homemade heartbreak songs. And there's a moment of happiness wound through. And then I let her go. We have links in the show notes to Joy Harjo's two new books, Weaving Sundown in a Scarlet Light and Catching the Light, as well as the many other books and albums she's put out before this. And if you feel like you need more poetry in your life, might I recommend our sister podcast, Read Me a Poem, where host Amanda Holmes introduces a new poem every seven days. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.